preached. You have preached back at me. Your silence. You, you can tell when people are listening. You don't hear this. You, you don't see people. Uh, when, when they're listening, you know it. Now you've listened today. Now. We're going to go to prayer. And in this prayer, I'm going to ask you to deal with God. Let's do it right now. All right? Let's go right there right now. Let's go to the Lord. Now I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to pray. Now, where? Wow. One of the great things about being here is I sit through those song services twice. What a blessing. Wow, both times. Amazing. I told uh, Zach this morning, just rerun the, rerun the tape at 9.30 and lip sync it. Man, it was great. No, it's 8 o'clock here. 9.30 was my last church. All right. All right, now today I'm going to quote the main text, Matthew 5, 9. You go to Romans 12, 9, please. Romans 12, 9 is where you will be. We're talking today on the 7th of the 8 Beatitudes. Now, I'll be back one more time on July 22. Today is the 7th Beatitude. I'm glad there's only 8 Beatitudes because I'm going to finish right on time. Just perfect. I'm going to cut it right off at that 8th Beatitude. It's going to be great. We are thrilled. We're thrilled for Mike and Tara and Audrey and John. What a blessing it has been to work with them. From the first, we just felt if the Lord would arrange it to where Mike could be your next pastor, what a great thing it would be. So we are happy for you. We are happy for them. We believe that the Lord's will is being done, and we pray God's going to bless you. Now, the only bad thing about it is, the only bad thing is, it just this is the first time I've seen so many, hap- so many people happy that I'm going to be unemployed. In fact, I was just sitting over here thinking, I've been in the ministry 51 years. This is the first time I've been terminated. <laughs> 51 years. This first time, that's it. But you're going to rejoice and have a great, great time. All right, today, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. What's the consequence? They shall be called the children of God. Now, that's what God wants us to do. When you became a Christ follower, you got his DNA. And so what God wants, he wants you to be like him. And the Bible clearly says that God is the God of peace. Therefore, when you became a Christ follower, you were expected to become a peaceful person so you get the family resemblance. You look like the family. You look like your brother or sister of Christ. You look like your part. This is your family. This is who you are. This is your DNA. Jesus came from heaven to earth to bring peace. He's the only, adop- the only begotten son that God ever had. And God wants all the adopted children to look like the, ado- the begotten son. All the adopted ones to look like the begotten one. So that's why we have to be peacemakers because that's what he is. All right, that's the consequence. Now the goal is to be peacemakers. We're going to read a passage. Ruthie's going to read the passage. It's in Romans 12, 9. And it's a lengthy passage that tells about relationships, interpersonal dealings that will help us in the message. All right, Ruthie? Romans 12, 9. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong and hold tightly to what is good. 
Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. Amen. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Amen. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other and don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil and do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that and you can live in peace with everyone. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's one of the simplest statements of our culture. We've heard it so often we just sort of disregard it. And yet when you said it, it would have exploded in that crowd. This may have been the most controversial of the eight Beatitudes because the crowd that's listening to him, they hated the Romans. And their dream was a Messiah who would come and every Roman soldier they ever saw in Israel, they would be slaughtered. That's what they were expecting from God. They were expecting from God for the blood to pour down the streets. God was going to send somebody, going to kill all those Roman legionnaires they wanted blood. They wanted a war to the bitter end. And so here comes Jesus, the rabbi. They think maybe he's the one, and he says, Blessed are the peacemakers. We're always in danger of reading back into Scripture what we have now 2,000 years later. But, but we live in the western part of the world. The western world has been totally influenced by Christianity. Christianity has a huge footprint in western culture. And so we look back and we don't understand how huge a deal this was for Jesus to say, blessed are the peacemakers, how mad it would have made them. And even though we're not quite as angry as those original hearers were, we're not wanting somebody to go around and kill people, actually we still live in a culture that needs to hear, blessed are the peacemakers. We live in a world that is filled with arguments, trouble, controversy, disagreements even this morning another knifing spree every day almost to the point to where we're getting so used to anger that we're not even seeing it anymore we have become a culture that that just adores anger everybody gets angry everybody you got to be angry about this angry about that angry about something else you got, you got to have something to be angry about and i've been saying for years there's only one step between anger and violence always so when you encourage anger, you're pushing people right up to the edge, right up against violence. And so we've become a culture that loves anger, and then we're surprised when it goes over into violence. And we've got to do something about that. We are expected to be different from the culture. We are supposed to be doing something about this anger, this frustration, 
this quarreling, these arguments, we are to do something. But let me tell you something. Peacemaking is not for sissies. Trust me. This is not for the weak of heart. There are four problems. Let me give you four problems really quick that that can give you trouble as a peacemaker. Number one, peacemaking takes time. You've always heard through the years, you can tell how much a Christian loves God by what they do with their money. Their wallet is always a good indicator of where they are spiritually. I got one better for you. Here's now the number one indicator of where you are with God. Your calendar. That's now bigger than this. Because in our culture, for the first time, time has become more precious a commodity than money. Therefore, what you do with your time really proves where your heart is. Some of you never do a daily Bible time. Some of you never spend any time in prayer. Some of you never do the Lord's work. You say you're too busy. It's a sin. That's a sin. But if you're going to be a peacemaker, it takes time. You have to work at it. And you've got to get on, get, got to where you have some margin in your life to where you can do the things of God. Number two, second problem. Peacemaking can be thankless. Moses separated the two Israelites fighting each other. And what was his reward? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Don't, don't expect to be the hero of the day if you take on peacemaking. Number three, third danger. Peacemaking can be dangerous. Uh, when you try to be a peacemaker, you can get beat up from both sides. I saw this when I was 12 years old. I was on the front porch of our house, and my aunt had just gone through a terrible divorce. And her ex-husband was going to pull up to the house to get my closest friend at the time, my cousin Rodney, his son, who was with the aunt, and the, the daddy was coming to pick him up. Well, so the ex-husband pulls up in front of the house. He gets out of the car, and he starts to walk up toward the porch to get my cousin. My dad's oldest brother happens to be there. And when he sees the ex-brother-in-law coming, he cannot control his fury and his anger. And he starts walking right straight out that sidewalk to do bodily harm to his ex-brother-in-law. My dad, seeing what was about to happen, went running. At the last second, he stepped between his brother and his ex-brother-in-law. And my dad, I saw in my own eyes, took the blow that was meant for the ex-brother-in-law. Peacemaking can be dangerous. Fourth danger. Peacemaking can backfire. The Bible says that anyone who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him is like a person who picks up a dog by its ears. That's what the Bible says. It's in Proverbs 26, 17. You don't always be looking for trouble to, to heal. That's not your job. Your job is not to make sure there's peace everywhere. No. There's sometimes it has nothing to do with you. There's nothing you can do. And if you try to stop and help everybody, you're going to be like picking up a dog by its ear. So you have to be wise. You know, we as Christians, one of our weaknesses is we want everything laid out for us. We, we want lists. That's why legalism is so popular among Christians. It tells you what to do. In this case, you do this. In that case, you do this. In this case, you do that. That is pure legalism for the Christian You're trying to make the decisions of life. You're trying to determine what's right, what's wrong. You have to decide how far you can go, 
how far you can not, not go. You have to pray. We live by faith, not by sight. And here is a classic example of that. Should I try to help those two people get along? Or should I not? That's a part of your walking with the Lord and determining if you can help or not. So with those four dangers in mind, I always want to give you the dangers. I don't want to lead you into something that uh, a fairytale existence. With those four dangers in mind, let me tell you the three ways that you have to be a peacemaker. Number one, you have to have peace with yourself. You have to love peace. I find this to be one of the most difficult things in my life. It is hard to convey to others what we do not possess. I love to watch boxing matches. I love to watch the news when people are fighting. I love to go to a Baptist convention where people are yelling at each other. I love it. I am so embarrassed. That's just the way it is. I like about the political wrangling. I can turn my TV on at night and watch for two hours all the trouble and all that's going on. The first thing you're going to have to do if you're going to be a peacemaker, and I struggle with this, you're going to have to love peace. You're all familiar with the Nobel Peace Prize. Let me tell you the rest of the story. The reason Alfred Nobel set aside his massive fortune, the interest of which goes to Nobel Peace Prize winners, the reason he did it was because he invented dynamite. Mr. Nobel lived long enough to see his invention used in war. And because he loved peace, he did not want that to be his legacy, so he started the Peace Prize. Of all of our presidents, maybe the one that loved peace the most was Woodrow Wilson. 100 years ago today, in, 19, in 1918, in this year, my grandfather, my mother's daddy, was a soldier boy on the ground in France. And Woodrow Wilson sent our boys over there because he truly believed and Americans believed they called it the war that would end all wars. They actually thought that they were fighting the war that was going to bring peace forever to the world. And then when the war was over, it was Woodrow Wilson who worked himself into probably a stroke or something, basically killed him, working so hard for the League of Nations, hoping that there would be peace in the world. The Wright brothers, all of us know the Wright brothers. We we love the Wright brothers. They invented the airplane. We love what they did. What most people don't know is that the Wright brothers loved peace. They thought. They thought that the airplane would end all war. They thought if you had planes up here looking down that you couldn't have armies. You couldn't amass troops. And so they literally thought that their invention was going to bring peace. Now, Wilbur didn't live long enough to see the difficulties. Orville lived all the way past the Second World War. Orville lived long enough to see the atomic bomb dropped out of one of his inventions. And he was crushed because these men, they loved peace. They were preacher's kids. They loved peace. So first of all, you've got to love peace. Number two, you've got to have peace with others. In a straight line from you to others, you, you've got to have peace with people you... You must love peace, and then you must radiate that into your relationships with everybody. And the Bible is full of admonitions and commands of what to do in personal relationships. In fact, the book, the Bible is the book on relationships, how to get along, how to live with people. One of the things it teaches us 
is that if we're having a problem with somebody, the Bible says be slow to anger, be slow to speak. That was James, our Lord's brother, his earthly brother, his half-brother. He said, be slow to speak. My guess is, the greatest speech you've ever made is the one that you never said. The words that you wanted to spew out and that time you held them in, that's probably your greatest speech. When you are angry, if the words that you want to spew are, are that profound, I mean, if they're really that good, you know what? They're going to be good an hour later. And many times you just need to wait. And when we do have to speak, the Bible, the Bible tells us what to do. The Bible says that a soft answer turns away wrath. It's one of my life verses. A soft answer turns away anger. It calms the conversation. One of the things that hurts families is what I call the heightening anger. Do, don't, do, don't, do, don't. The voice is rising. That's learned behavior. You learned that when you were a kid or when you were a teenager. You started practicing in your marriage. That is totally unnecessary. That is totally your fault. If somebody says something and you raise it, and they say it, and you raise the tone, and they you raise it, that's learned behavior. It's just a sin. The Bible is very clear. A soft answer turneth away wrath. So rather than do, don't, do, don't, do, don't, you do. Do, don't, do, don't, do, don't. And then you calm for a little while. But once you start doing this, somebody's got to back down. But when you do this, Everybody stays on the same level. And then, if the peace is broken, the Bible tells us what to do. The Bible is perfect about relationships. It says you never give up. You never get to the point that you never say, I'm sorry. In fact, you live, as the verse, one of the verses that Ruthie read, as much as it lieth in you, live at peace with all people. In other words, some relationships cannot be healed. Some of you are in relationships that are broken. They're never going to be healed. But you must make sure that all of the blame, all of the blame is on them. Not 75%, 25%. That's not good enough. 100% their fault. Jesus came to this earth for us to have peace with God. And we have to imitate Him and go to others and try to have peace with them. You, you must continue the relationship. Whatever your relationship was with the person before you had the split... That's what you need to be trying to do now. In our younger years, Ruthie and I were just been married to just a couple of years, and we became a pastor and wife in a little church in Mississippi while we were in seminary. And we had two families that we just adored. And just before we got there, people would tell us a story that before we got there, that once night a week, they would always be in each other's homes. Always, every week, playing cards, kids. Everybody, they had these card games, board, they'd play, all right. One of the families, the oldest daughter, became with child outside of marriage. And 40-something years ago, in Mississippi, rural Mississippi, that was bad. And so this other family quit having this family to their home. I arrived, and these people would say, oh, we still love them. It's still wonderful. Nothing's changed. It, we're just, we just think they're wonderful people 
And yet their, their actions were speaking so loud that it was thundering out their words. You see, if you have a broken relationship, you need to at least be trying to do what you did with that person before the relationship broke. You send birthday cards. You send Christmas cards. If they have trouble, you relieve them. If you get, they get sick, you go visit them. The Bible says if your enemy hungers, you feed him. So what if you're good to your friends? Even lost people do that. Jesus taught us that. It's what you do to your enemies, to the people who are angry at you. That's what matters as a Christian. You, you have to do everything you can to make sure that that person knows the door is open. They can come back and see you anytime they want to. They need to know they can come talk to you at any moment. So first, you've got to have peace in yourself. You've got to love peace. Then you've got to make sure you're right this way with everybody in your life. Then the third thing, you've got to help people get along with each other. Ruthie and I, early in our marriage, we, we began to see something that we thought was very interesting. We call it the scarcity mentality. The idea that in a group of three or four people, if this person likes this person, then this person won't have as much love for me as they did before. That's scarcity. There's X amount of love to go around. And so if this person's loving somebody else, they don't have enough to give me. We call that the scarcity mentality. And so what happens is, because we don't, we don't necessarily think that way, but because subconsciously we're thinking that way, what happens is, if this person says something negative about this person, without realizing it, we, we will repeat it, we'll say something because we don't want this relationship to come so strong that it blocks us out. Say so it's scarcity. You believe there's only so amount of love to go around. So, so what happens is somebody says something and you pass it on. You need to stop it. Stop that. The greatest speech you've ever made is probably the one you never spoke. Don't ever repeat things that cause harm. Don't, don't drive wedges between people. Don't, don't act like there's some negative thing on it, that you have some cause, some mission. Only share it if the person needs to do something about it. There's nothing a person can do. It's just a casual remark. Let it go. Don't bring it to their attention. All right. So those are the three ways that we make peace. We love it. We make sure we've got peace there, buddy. And then those situations where we find ourselves where we can be significant, we try to help them. Now, three, the three places to do it, and we'll be done. Number one, peacemakers have to exercise their skill at home. A good marriage and a good family is heaven on earth. An angry home is perdition on earth. Ruthie and I, our 47 years of marriage, have lived by a verse that we believe in strongly. And when we do our premarital counseling, when they come and sit on our couch, and we pull our chairs right in front of them, and we do our premarital counseling, there's a verse that we tell them this is the most important verse in the Bible about marriage. We look them right in the eye and say, this is it. Number one, more important than anything else, this is it. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You never go to bed angry with one another. Never. For 47 years, Ruthie and I have lived by that rule. She's strong-willed. I'm strong-willed. We're headstrong. We raised two headstrong children. As far as we know. Now, you never know. The Lord, the Lord knows hearts. 
But as far as we know, of the four of us, there was never one night that any of us went to bed with an unresolved issue with one of the others. If you ever go to bed angry, you are in sin. You must not do that, ever, under any circumstance. You might have to stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning, but you don't go to bed until it is settled. So that's at home. By the way, by the way, that's not only between husbands and wives, that's parents and children. There's some of you parents need to go home and apologize to your kids. And there's some of you kids that need to go home and apologize to your parents. It just, it's in all the dynamics of the home. Then number two, you're not listening fast enough. Come on, we've got, we got to speed this up. Number two, number two, peacemakers, they exercise their skill at work. Isn't it amazing? Preachers almost never talk about work, the workplace. And yet that's where you spend more of your day than any place else usually. And the Bible is full of stuff that talks about the workplace. Abraham and Lot, their shepherds, started fighting each other. And so Abraham said, you know what, we can't do this. There's, there's pagans all around us, and they're going to think badly of our God if we don't do something. So you go your way, and I'll go mine. And so he's teaching us that in the workplace, sometimes you just take the hit because you want God to get the honor and the glory. It is incredible to me. There are people, there are some of you here right now, tomorrow you're going to go to work. You envy anybody that gets a promotion over you. You're a child of the king. If somebody gets promoted over you, you be the first one in their office. You be the first one to pat them on the back. You're a child of God. You're a peacemaker at work as well as at home. It is incredible to me that the people of God, they're the ones sharing the gossip. They're the ones causing the trouble. They're the bosses being hard on their people. They're the people trying to stretch their coffee breaks and come a little bit late and leave a little bit early. Stop it. Stop it. In the workplace where you work, you must be the greatest example of Jesus that those people ever see. General Robert E. Lee in the Confederacy was greatly loved, but there was one man that couldn't stand him. And he was on his staff. It was General Whiting, W-H-I-T-I-N-G. Whiting was always berating Robert E. Lee, always writing letters, always saying he was doing a terrible job. And as the war went on, President Jefferson Davis one day asked Lee for a recommendation. He wanted his opinion of Whiting. General Lee responded and gave a great recommendation on Whiting. One of Robert E. Lee's closest friends took him aside and said, Do you not know what Whiting does to you? Do you not understand what he does behind your back and how he is always after you? And Lee said, Yes, I know. But the president asked me what I thought of Whiting, not what Whiting thought of me. That's the magnanimity that a Christian should bring to the workplace. And then finally, first of all at home, Secondly, at the workplace. Number three, at church. There are some of you in this room who have such anger towards somebody who will not go out that door if you see them close. In this room, there are some of you, the very person that's keeping you from being what God wants you to be. There are some of you who your prayers have not had any effect, not been effective at all because of somebody else in this room. And it's not their fault. 
Some of you, your biggest problem is not what's going on out there in the bars. Your problem is not pornography on the Internet. No, that's not your biggest problem. For many of you in this room, your biggest problem is sitting 10 feet away from you, 20 feet away from you. Somebody that you've had an anger toward for many years, and your prayers are not getting any higher than that rafter right there. Our master knew we were going to have a problem with this. So Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, as he's praying for you and me, remember in John 17, he said he prayed for the disciples, but then he also said, and I pray for all those who will believe because of these men. So he was praying for us, for you and me. He was praying for Riverview Baptist Church. And his prayer was that they all may be one. Now the reason Jesus prayed that was because he knew it was going to be a problem. And his concerns were well grounded. He it's been a problem. It's always been a problem. During the 3rd century, Marcus Aurelius was the greatest of the Roman emperors during that, uh, that period. And he was not a Christian. But Marcus Aurelius loved the teachings of Jesus. Admired Jesus greatly. And one day he was in a council. And there were two men in the room who claimed to be Christians. And they started arguing with one another. And Aurelius was so upset that he made an emperor's command. That those two men could never again be called Christians. I fear that the people going down that road right now, if you were to say to them, oh, there's a Baptist church, that the first thought probably would not be peace. We've become the cultural hitmen. We have fights with one another. We go out and start other churches. We get mad at one another. And we split. A hundred years after Marcus Aurelius, when Constantine became the emperor of Rome, and he freed, he, I mean, he, he let the Christians have free reign. In fact, he was the one who led toward becoming the official religion of the empire. So he frees the Christians, as it were. And so Constantine, the Christians now, they have all this freedom and I'll be, when he sets them, gives them liberty, as it were, they started arguing with one another. And so now he's got a real problem on his hands because the Christians, they're so mad at each other, and that's affecting the empire. So he called the bishops of the Roman Empire to come to the city of Nicaea in the year 325 to stop this warring. He was a greater Christian than they were. And so they arrived in 325, and they all came with their treatises. They all came with their statements of what they thought was wrong with everybody else. They laid those before Constantine, and the emperor took those papers, and he ripped them to shreds. And then he said, now we will pursue peace. This, this has always haunted us. Two of my greatest heroes are Martin Luther and John Calvin. Martin Luther was a hothead. He was always boiling over to somebody. He's always having a temper fit. And he would berate John Calvin. But John Calvin, never, ever do we know of him ever saying one negative thing about Luther. He would say, he is a fine instrument of God, meant to do good and do great works. I love John Calvin for that. And two of my greatest heroes, Whitfield and Wesley, the two great preachers, Whitfield and Wesley. I, I, as you all know, I'm obsessed with reading and um, I was reading a secular history book about American history this week. 
And in the book, he says that, that there could have never been an America had it not been for the great preaching of George Whitfield. I thought, that's interesting. See, the historians believe that it was Whitfield going up and down the, the 13 colonies and preaching that caused the colonies to be close enough to each other to be willing to be united against Britain. That without Whitfield, they would have all been divided. It was Whitfield, by the way, that made Franklin wealthy. Franklin got the rights to produce Whitfield's sermons. So you had Whitfield in our part of the world, Wesley mainly in the other part of the world, in England. And these two men were the two premier men in Christianity. Wesley prevented the mass murder of the French Revolution in Britain. He saved Britain. Whitfield saved the United States, the colonies that became the United States. But these two men began to disagree on the issue of eternal security. Whitfield believed that once you became a Christian, you could never lose your salvation Wesley said I do not believe that I believe that you can be saved and lost again and so here is two of the most famous men in the world in the press every day and they started arguing with one another and the intensity began to get pretty embarrassing and then all of a sudden Whitfield my great hero Whitfield he sent out the word to all of his people no more arguments none don't ever use my name. He said, let the name of Whitfield perish. If you want to be called a child of God, if you want somebody to accuse you of having the DNA of God, you want somebody to say, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's a Christian right there. You need to be a peacemaker. You need to be a peacemaker in your home. There are some of you who need to go home today. You need to look right across the table. You need to apologize. You say you're sorry. You say, we're going to change this forever. Nobody in this household is ever going to go to bed upset with anybody else. You need to go to work tomorrow. You be the first one there saying hi to everybody, blessing everyone, the ones that you've had trouble with, the ones that you have this interaction difficulty. You be right there with them. And you become their dearest friend. And you stay right with it. And in this church right here, if there's one person that you kind of avoid, that you kind of make sure you're around the corner, that needs to be the first person you see today. Because blessed are the peacemakers. I think that's enough for today. So let's stop right there. I think that's enough. We're going to end it right there.